Jesus. All right. Welcome to Sierra Bible Church. Hey, if by chance I have not met you yet, my name is Jesse, and uh, and for, <laughs> what's going on here? I'm missing something. Um, and uh, uh, I just want to welcome you and uh, appreciate that you're here. I know many of you are here every week, and we love you and we're thankful for you. Uh, and you may be visiting, or you might be here just for the last few weeks. Uh, maybe you're visiting out of the area. Maybe. Uh, you're looking for a church. We just want you to know a couple things. One, we pray for visitors. We, we want people to come and experience the love of the Lord. We believe in the Word of God. We believe that it is, uh, it, that it is effective in, in its work in people's lives. And we believe that uh, God has done something unique and special uh, amongst our, our body here. And uh, we're just thankful you're here. And if you are new, uh, we'd love to connect with you. And the way that we do that is we encourage you to go to our info booth outside to my right out here and uh, give you an opportunity to get a free gift from us. So just like Grace, we like to give away things for free, and we got a gift for you. And then uh, it's an opportunity there for you to find out everything that we do, what we're about, give you an opportunity to sign up for our newsletter that goes out every week. And so uh, if that's you, please make sure uh, you take opportunity to stop out there. And then um, we are going to continue our study in Galatians chapter 4. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, and uh, one of these lovely gentlemen in the back would love to let you use one of our Bibles. Uh, we typically use uh, an ESV, uh, English Standard Version, for those of you uh, who may not be familiar with our version, that's what we use. Uh, and then uh, as that's being handed out and as you're turning to Galatians, I want to highlight uh, a couple things. One is, girls, you got a bunco night coming up, so ladies, make sure you sign up for that. There's some prizes, good chance to connect with some other ladies November 4th. Uh, and then we also are already starting to get signups uh, for Angel Tree, which is a program that uh, helps uh, give gifts to children whose parents are incarcerated. And there is all, kind, all kinds of great celebratory stories of families that have just been really, really impacted by the free gifts that we give. So family can have a Christmas uh, as well as blessing those who are incarcerated in those kids. And, and I can't tell you uh, how, how special this is. So Please sign up for that. Some of you do that every year. Uh, I think we got about 30 more. I, I haven't touched base with anybody after the first service, but I know we have about 30 more families that need to be adopted. Would love for you uh, to do that. And then I just want to do a ministry uh, kind of highlight before we do my next announcement. One is, we, so we just did Trunk or Treat. Now, <laughs> we have these seasons in church that, like, it's just, right now, this is one of those busy seasons. So we just got done with Trunk or Treat. And we're building up towards Night in Bethlehem, which is another big event for us. We take the entire inside of this room. It gets decorated like first century Bethlehem. Uh, and, and we give away free little crafts. There's little booths that the kids can hang out in and decorate Christmas ornaments uh, and make things. There's free food and treats that are time period specific. There's music. And it's just a complete blast. We're looking for volunteers for that. And we're gearing up for that. And the signups are outside uh, for that. So we're looking for more people to help there as we gear up for that season. And then just to give you an idea of how successful Night of Bethlehem was for us, again, we had uh, at least a thousand, if not more thousand people pass through uh, the, the campus this year. Uh, we, we cooked 800 hot dogs, uh, which is an incredible amount of gross, disgusting meat. Um, <laughs> and hot dogs are nasty, but in the name of Jesus, we handed them out and <clears throat> people ate them. Uh, they were, they were good. <laughs> you were one of the cooks, huh? I apologize. Um, we had 20 plus cars, 15 guys from Teen Challenge came down from that program to help, which we're tremendously blessed to have them be a part of it. And, uh, for me, I, I dressed as, uh, as a Marvel character by the name of Thanos. Uh, I know several of you were hoping I would dress as Fat Thor, and that was not something I wanted to do. Um, and for me to stand out there for four hours handing out candy... Uh, and man, just to be part of the community, be part of the event, and to see these kids come up and, and just, a lot of them knew who I, who I was, uh, Thanos, or some of the Hispanic kids from Mexico, Thanos, what's happening, you know, which was really cool. Uh, families wanted to take pictures with me. There was a guy dressed as skinny Thor, and he wanted to take a picture with fat Thanos, and so we did that, and I was like, man, this is so neat that as a, you know, the pastor, I'm taking pictures with these people in the community. And every year, you know, we kind of got to deal with a little bit of that question. People ask, you know, why are we doing an event on Halloween? And I got to tell you, you know, the conviction that I see, uh, that I feel in scripture and, 
and that the church just simply has not been designed for us to be stuck in these four walls. And, and we do things here at Sierra Bible to try to press us out, move us into the community, uh, and build relationships with people who don't know Jesus. And the sheer amount of people who don't go to church, the sheer amount of people who've never even really interacted with a Christian that come on that Halloween event, that hug on, on the people that are there, that are smiling and they're laughing and they're giggling and they're playing games, and they know, man, this place is reaching into the community. And uh, I'm just thankful that, that we are able to reach out and say, listen, let's get outside of the church and just enjoy the community and redeem a day that a lot of people see as evil and redeem it as a day of love and a day of service and a day of encouragement. And so could you please give Brad Knoll and his team just a round of applause? Just doing an amazing job. Um, When a church ceases to be in the community, as Jesus stated, that he was a friend of sinners. And when we cease to do that, that, that's, that's the day that the church, I'm sure, will start to decline. And so it's just really important for us to continue to maintain not only are we here for the, for the glory of God in this church, not only are we here to disciple and to teach the word that we would grow in our sanctification, but we are here so that we will, we will bless our community and bless people who don't know Jesus, that they too would see our good works and they would glorify God. So I'm just excited that we continue to do such great things like that. Um, and then another thing that we do uh, here that's under our umbrella is Foster the Sierras, which is uh, a, a ministry that helps families adopt and foster. And Katie's going to share real quick. We have a special event uh, for those of you who might want more information on how to participate in this. Uh, they're doing an event. So if you would welcome Katie Benty to the stage. <laughs> Good morning, church. Hi, I'm Katie Benty. If you don't know me, I am um, one of the Foster the, C- Foster the Sierra's board members. And currently, Foster the Sierra's has 12 local families that they support who are engaged in the foster care program, whether they are starting with certification all the way through the adoption process and beyond. So this is a super cool program. Uh, Sierra Bible Church is a very large supporter of it. And next week we are having a meet and greet where you get the opportunity to meet some of the families, learn a little bit more about what Foster the Sierras is and how perhaps you can be involved or help support it. So after each service, we're going to be offering two different opportunities. One, um, donuts after the 8.30 service, and the other is tacos. So sweet or savory, pick your poison. We hope to see you there. I'll be at their taco one for sure. Thank you, Katie. Okay. Um, So if you would, if you're able to this morning, we, we desire to honor the word of the Lord, uh, would you stand with me as we read from chapter 4, verses just 8 through 11, so just a few verses, um, or 8 through 10, I'm sorry, and the reason they're, ju- they're so short, uh, to give you just a little bit of a backdrop, th- what's covered in these verses actually is something that is connected to kind of a mega theme throughout Scripture. It's a big deal what's being said in these verses, not only for the Galatian church, uh, but for our church as a whole, for the American church as a whole, for the Christian church as a whole, uh, as well as something that is mentioned throughout the history of the church. So if you would, let us read together verse 8, chapter 4. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Again, Lord, we ask your word to be true. Pierce into our hearts. Lord, draw near to us. Purify us, Lord. Take away the things that don't need to be there, that our joy would be increased and our worship made more pure. We trust you for what you're going to do within your bride this morning. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. amen. You may be seated. Okay. So I got to unpack some stuff in this passage. So the, the first thing that... I need to make you aware of, just by way of context again, is that Paul has written this letter because he planted this church. He helped plant this church. And he saw these individuals who were not Gentiles, oh, I'm sorry, who were Gentiles, not Jews, began to become Christians, and the church started to flourish in this place called Galatia within Asia Minor. 
And, and as he then planted the church, he left to go serve and build uh, and help other churches grow and thrive because Paul has that uh, apostle-type, church-planting-type, pastor-type heart. And then he hears word that while he's gone, these Judaizers have come in, and the Judaizers have began to teach the church that, that to be saved in Jesus alone is not sufficient. You also need to be saved by the law. And so they started to add all of their old tradition which we know of in the Old Testament, the Levitical laws, the Mosaic laws, the laws of purification. And he be, they began to say, listen, it's not just Jesus alone, it's also works. And so they began to add to the gospel, which Paul says, this is, this is no gospel at all. This is not a gospel of grace. And so he writes this letter to the Galatians and hopes to tell them and teach them they're not to rely on their works for the favor of God or for the salvation of God, but they're to rely on the grace of God in Christ alone. And so he's written this letter, and then he comes upon this spot here, and he mentioned it earlier in, in chapter 4. Uh, he uses the words in, in verse 3, these elementary principles of the world. He uses the word elementary principles again in the passage which we just read, and then he uses this language of, of you, you are returning back to slavery by that which is by nature not God's. Uh, and so what is this not God's? What does this mean? When he says, okay, listen, Galatian church, you, you were once worshiping Jesus alone and grace alone. You understood your salvation. Now you're returning back to your old ways, and you're worshiping your old ways, which is to worship that which is a non-God. And so now we have to define what a non-God is and what it means to be a slave to this thing that is a non-God. This is Paul's way. This is the language in which Paul uses to speak towards a word that's been used multiple times in the Old Testament for idols. It's idol worship. So the Gentiles, they, they actually worshipped all kinds of different gods in uh, Paul's day. They worshipped the god of Bacchus, the god of Ares, the god of Aphrodite. And, and really, essentially, what they were doing is they were making sacrifices to these non-gods, which is what Paul calls them. He says they're not actual gods. They're non-gods. And you're worshipping them and you're giving to them. You're actually giving sacrifices to them. And the reason they're doing that is so that they would be fulfilled by those gods. So, for instance, the god of Bacchus was the god of partying, the god of fun. Uh, and so one would offer sacrifices to the god of Bacchus so that they would have a fun life. Uh, or they would offer a sacrifice to the god of Ares, which was the god of war or the god of control, that I would have power, that I would be able to usurp other people, that I'd be above others. Uh, and then Aphrodite, we know, is the god of sexual love and beauty that we would then, in those days, offer to this god uh, that we would have a good sex life, that we would look good. Uh, and so these were these non-gods. And Paul says, you can become enslaved to these non-gods. And now what Paul is essentially saying is, he, he's pressing in, he's saying, listen, all of you at a certain point in time, you have non-gods in your life. And you had a non-god in your life. You worship something which was not Jesus. Here's the best way to define this. I've said this on many occasions, and it's because this is such a big deal in the Bible. Uh, none of us in the room, none of us in, in culture, any culture, any culture across any time and any place uh, is ever worship neutral. Uh, we've used that language before. What I mean by no one's worship neutral is that we, all of us, no matter whether you're a Christian or not, you've been created by God, you're a created being, and because you're a created being and you've been created in God's image, God has made it that you would look outward towards something that would fulfill you. And that's what worship is, looking towards something that will fulfill you or fulfill your needs. And every human being on the planet today is bent to give their lives to something. So the question this morning is if you're not a Christian, why would you want to give your life to Jesus as opposed to something else? If you are a Christian, what are the ways, the subtle ways that the enemy has turned your heart away from Jesus towards other things which would be non-gods, which would be idols to fulfill your needs? So, so what are idols? Idols are typically good things made best. Good things made best. So the first thing you have to recognize in regards towards idols is that idols uh, in and of themselves typically aren't bad. So, so they're not typically evil. What do I mean by that? Uh, the, the clearest kind of example I could think of uh, this morning is the use of alcohol. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about alcohol. Uh, some Christians have gone as far as saying, saying, you know what? 
if you're a Christian, you should abstain from alcohol altogether. And that's their, their stance. And some of them would maybe even try to define that biblically. However, I would say this, that's not what the Bible teaches in regards to alcohol. The Bible doesn't teach outright abstinence. It, it teaches moderation. It teaches self-control. It tells you not to get drunk, right? In fact, Jesus' first miracle was to turn water into the very, very best wine anyone ever had, right, at a wedding. Uh, and so, so, so when you go, okay, wait a minute now, alcohol is not necessarily a bad thing, but when you make it a best thing, when you turn towards alcohol to, to fulfill you, you've now turned it into a non-god, you've turned it into an idol. I like how Augustine said it. Augustine's a, a great theologian, way, way, way back in the day. He's dead, long gone now. Uh, and dead people have a lot of good things to say. You should read their stuff. And Augustine said, Augustine said this. He said, listen, this is, this is an interesting statement. He said, total abstinence, in regards to alcohol, total abstinence is less virtuous, he said, than perfect moderation. He said, listen, it's easy, it's easy to say, and this is where, where, where when we look at, again, Paul in context is saying, you're not saved by what you do. You're saved by who you put your faith in. And, and what we like to do as Christians, we like to make standards, right? Uh, we were talking about this in regards uh, with our elders recently in regards to tithing. Uh, and someone, someone, someone said, you know, the Bible teaches give 10%. Uh, it does teach that. It says give 10%. But the issue within the 10% in the New Testament, because the New Testament doesn't teach 10%. New Testament says give cheerfully. New Testament says give above and beyond. New Testament basically teaches give according to the heart. Because what happens is, and this is typical Christianity stuff, if you see or if you hear you're supposed to give 10%, well, then you give 10% and you think, well, I've done my part. I'm giving 10%. And when you meet 10%, you can feel self-righteous. Or if you give ten, above 10%, you can feel self-righteous. If you give below 10% this morning, you're like, well, I don't give 10%. Then you can feel full of conviction and feel guilty that you're not giving 10%. And the Bible doesn't say the standard. The standard is just to show you your need and that your heart should be focused on Christ and not the standard because no one ever meets the standard. No one ever meets the standard. That's what the law is for. And ultimately, when, when we say, okay, an idol is something that we turn to that's a good thing turned best, an idol ultimately is used that we would grab our affection or fulfill the hole that exists in our hearts. Every human being is well aware that, that there's something missing. You might even be feeling it this morning. And what, what Calvin said, Calvin actually said it this way, he said, our hearts are idol factories. He says the reality of what happens within the human heart is we start to worship something that's a non-God, worship something that we hope will fulfill us, and once we say, okay, we recognize it. So for instance, let's say this morning you realized, I shouldn't drink alcohol. So you put away that idol. Now, more times than not, what happens is you kill that idol only to resurrect a new one. So you give up alcohol, but now you eat candy all day long. (laughs) You can't stop eating chocolate. We exchange, and this is what Calvin was saying. He's saying, listen, the heart is so deceitful, which is the biblical language that he's pulling it from. We don't even know how dark it really is. We, we are trying to fulfill the heart in us, and we're ultimately, we do that because we think, we think by giving ourselves to this idol, it will make us happy. Again, this is Dead Theologian Day. Pascal said, um, Pascal said this, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some to go to war, some for avoiding it. It's the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but towards this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. It's a radical statement, isn't it? And and what the reformer said, in, in light of that, the reformer said, listen, so Pascal says, listen, listen, Everybody wants to be happy. Everybody's bent towards trying to fulfill themselves. And, and one of the things within, before I move on a little bit, so you can understand in context how this works out in the American church, one of the things a, a pastor like myself or the leadership like myself has to do, I, I probably should go further. The job of every Christian, when you think of trying to ensure that you're worshiping Jesus alone, is to recognize that which is tugging you away as a Christian, away from pure unadulterated worship of God himself in the specific area that you're in. So l- let me, before I, before I go in that direction, let me, let me just help you understand something more about idols before we move in that direction. Idols fulfill you when you get them, 
and they devastate you when you don't. Uh, what, what do I mean by that? Well, well uh, some of the context, this is where I was going a minute ago, some of the context in our area, the idol, the idol that exists in the Tahoe Truckee Basin is the idol of recreation. Right? We believe, we believe many people who come to Tahoe come to have that epic lifestyle. Right? This is a base camp for what? That's our town slogan. It's a base camp for a big, big life, for to have the great life. And what happens is it's happening right now. Some of you, some of you have moved here. Some of you love this area because of the snow and the recreation that it has. And we're coming into the season, and many of you are praying to the heavens that God will send snow down that you will have great pow, right? I am not done preaching. Whoever did that, man, you better watch out for the rest of the sermon here. And what happened, to give you an idea of this, what happens is when it snows, you praise the heavens, and when you don't get the snow that you want, you curse it. Right now, there are millions, there are millions of people right now sitting in a stadium watching football games who have painted themselves. <laughs> they, they, they have. They're wearing costumes, and they're, they are crying out that their idol will fulfill them. Now, I'm a football guy, so my cards are going to kind of be laid out on the table here. Uh, early on in the season, there was a lot of speculation. I know this doesn't relate to everybody. Just, just bear with me. Uh, early on in the season, there was great speculation that the Cleveland Browns were going to have a great year. <laughs> Baker Mayfield is on the field. We've got Odell Beckham Jr., and we've got Jarvis Landry. We've got a tremendous defense. And, and so at the beginning of the year, everyone's going, watch, watch the Browns. And the fans are going, we're going to have a team, we're going to have a team. Now, now we're halfway through the season. They stink. They're not doing well. And now it's crucify Baker Mayfield. Get rid of Freddie Kitchens, the head coach. This is the human heart. What happens is we raise up the idol. We say, I want the idol. When the idol doesn't fulfill, we say, crucify the idol. Just as the Pharisees did unto Jesus, crucify the idol. Crucify the thing that does not satisfy. Crucify the thing that's not, not, not fulfilling me and raise me up a new one. Give me a new leader. Give me a new coach. Give me a new whatever. The gospel is ingrained so deeply in the heart that when your idol, that which you worship, doesn't perform, you want to crucify it, you want to murder it, and you want a new one to be resurrected in its place. And you move from event from event to thing after thing, trying to fulfill the heart which only God can fulfill. And this is what Pascal's saying. He says, listen, the human heart wants to be happy. And the reformers came along and said, listen, along with Martin Luther and many others, said, listen, the heart does look for happiness but the heart can only find its true happiness in the glory of God himself. And so what the reformer said was man's chief end is man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy God forever. That's man's chief end. The reformer said, listen, we understand that the human heart, it makes idol factors. The human heart is running after things to make itself happy, both in the Old Testament as well as in the New. And the only way that you're going to find contentment is within Jesus Christ himself. Let me give you a biblical example, Luke chapter 15. Some of you are familiar with the story of Luke chapter 15 because it's the story of the prodigal son. You remember the story, right? The father has a great inheritance. He's got two sons. Uh, and the one son, the one son which most pastors and teachers and theologians emphasize, that first son went to the father, said, listen, dad, hey, um, I know you got an inheritance for me. I'm not too hip on waiting uh, for you to die to receive it. So I would like my money now. Cut, cut me a check now. And so the dad does. He cuts the son a check. And the son, the son turns his back on his father, goes into the world, and spends his inheritance on that which he thinks will ultimately make him happy. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It existed all the way back then. And he is. He parties it up. He, he's doing what a male would do. He's spending his money. After spending all of that money, he finds himself in a pig pen. He wakes up with a bunch of piggies, and he has an epiphany. And the epiphany is, it would be better for me to go back to my father and to be a slave in his own house than to live in the pig pen. So he picks himself up. He walks home. And if you know the beautiful story, you know that father's waiting on his porch looking for his son over the horizon, sees his son, runs after his son, takes his own cloak, places it upon his son, brings him into the home, warms him, throws a great party for him, and all the while there's another son. Remember the other son? 
He comes in and says, whoa, wait a minute. I've been working for you. I've done everything right. I've done everything correct. Where's my party? Where's my inheritance? What the story is trying to emphasize for us is that both sons had idols. Both sons had false worship. One son ran after sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and the other son tried to earn the father's inheritance through good works. See, the lesson of the story ultimately is neither of them wanted the father. Both of them wanted the father's stuff. One went about it through rebellion, and the other went about it by trying to earn it. Both sons didn't want the father or the father's love. And ultimately, underneath all of that lesson, what ultimately we learn here is that if anything, the idolatry and slavery of religion is more dangerous than the idolatry and slavery of irreligion because it's less obvious. The irreligious person knows he's far away from God, but the religious person does not. Because in the story, the one son who went out and partied and entered into depravity realized he needs salvation, while the other son never came in the text to a place of repentance. You see what I'm saying? And so what happens here, what Paul is saying, listen, this, this is subversive. This is dangerous. This is ugly because if you are trying, he, what Paul is doing is he's, he's showing there's an equal correlation between running after false non-gods that, that won't fulfill you and a correlation between trying to earn God's love that it's also like worshiping a non-god. And in our culture and our society, it isn't just skiing. It can be anything. Remember I said an idol ultimately can be defined as a good thing made best. You can make an idol out of anything, absolutely anything. You can make an idol out of your spouse, which would be the worst thing that you can do. You, you, you hope that your wife or your husband will meet particular needs in your life, and it's the same revolving door. When the husband or the wife fulfills the needs, you're happy and you're filled with praise. And when they don't, you're bitter and you're angry. Any married couples relate to this? Yeah, no. <laughs> Mm-mm. I dare not speak. <laughs> Keep certain things in the dark. It's the same thing even with children. Looking for your child to fulfill a need or a desire to live vicariously through them uh, in hopes that they would fulfill you. It can be anything. It's good things made best. That's what Satan does. That's the lie. And ultimately, what Paul is ultimately saying in regards to these idols, he says they're non-gods, In another place, he says, they're gods, but they're non-gods. When he's saying they're gods, but they're non-gods, what he's actually saying is there are demons behind these gods. There are demonic forces at work to trick you into giving your heart of worship towards that which is not satisfying. You might be saying this morning, where's he getting that from? 1 Corinthians 10.20. Paul says it like this. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, The pagan sacrifice to false idols, he says, they offer to demons and not to God. And then Paul says, I don't want to participate with demons. Ultimately, when you you give yourself to these non-gods, there is a spiritual force at work behind them that's trying to trick you and malign you to not want God the Father himself, but to want God's stuff. It's one of the dangers that can exist within the church. And ultimately, ultimately, the worst idol that you and I have, you know what it is? The worst idol one can have in one's life, it's not Netflix, which it could be your idol. It's not, it's not Instagram, which could be your idol. It's not skiing or mountain biking or a sport that could be your most dangerous idol. The most dangerous idol Scripture mentions is the idol of self. It's you. And this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. If you remember, Adam and Eve were in perfect harmony with God, and when they made the decision to grab the apple, it was a declaration of, I want to satisfy myself with something other than God himself. That's what grabbing the, the apple ultimately is. And every time we reach towards those things which are non-gods, we are reaching towards something and de- declaring, I need something in addition to Jesus. I need something in addition to what God has to offer, and then we partake. And that's why, why the definition of earlier from the Augustine, total abstinence is more or is less virtuous than perfect moderation, is ultimately bringing everything in life, food, marriage, relationships, parenting, into perfect moderation unto declaration of living for God's glory. Um, so the self. 
the, there's a blog that said it this way, the love of our own glory is the greatest competitor with God in our own hearts. Isn't it easy to want to put yourself first? I mean, I was thinking about this. I, uh, so um, we, don't, we don't have cable television in our house. So we do watch TV, but we don't have cable, which means my kids don't see commercials very often, right? And so my kids will say, uh, when a commercial does come on for something, they'll say, Dad, what is that? And, I, and I'll say, that's somebody trying to make you unsatisfied with what you have. And they'll go, They're trying to sell you something, trying to get you to, to, right? I mean, that's what commercials do. That's what slogans do. They, they get you to feel like, I, I need this thing. I need it. And so my, our pure mode, of, mode of, of entertainment when we watch movies and stuff is I have, an, I have an Xbox. I don't have Apple TV or anything. They're just an Xbox. And that's where we get our, uh, our Hulu and Netflix and things like that to stream uh, television programs. And I have found myself in our American culture feeling frustrated that I have to hold a controller uh, to search for a movie and go click, 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 click. If you can relate to it at all, you know what I mean. And, and I find myself going, why can't I do what many of you do, which is just go, Alexa, turn on Avengers. No one does that? You're liars. <laughs> I've seen people do it on Apple TV. Like, they have that technology now, and I can see it. This is, the, this is where it's going to go. go. I hate clicking. I mean, it used to be... I am, I'm running that verge. I grew up with all that technology, but I still remember owning a TV on a Saturday morning and watching Tom and Jerry and being like, okay, it's time to watch Scooby-Doo and having to do this. (laughs) Now, (laughs) now, if I don't have the remote near me, I'm like, Peyton, can you get the remote? I don't want to get up. And then I started thinking, it just would be nice if this thing knew what I wanted to watch and it just did it. And I was like, and after watching several things online, I'm like, it's coming. AI is coming. There's going to be a day. There's going to be a day where that thing is like, sucks your brain matter from your head and puts on the television screen what you want to watch. And we're going to think it's completely normal. And it isn't. It's weird, Right? And my point to that is that we, we are constantly looking to try to fulfill ourselves with things that satisfy us. Uh, another author says the soul is, is designed to worship. Remember I said we're not worship neutral. But not to worship ourselves. The self is not glorious enough to captivate the soul. The soul is not glorious enough to captivate the soul. We know this. Yet, our fallen selves don't want to believe it. We're drawn again and again into the hopeless labyrinth of deception that is self-worship. We know we're not worship-worthy, no matter how many self-affirming pop psychology mantras we chant, and yet we try over and over to satisfy our souls with other people's praise and, if possible, worship of ourself. Our fallen natures seem to believe that if enough people admire us, we just might believe we're admirable. And ultimately, down deep, we know we know that, that com- we're not completely admirable. We, we, we know that down deep we're not worship worthy, and that's because the heart, the heart truly is designed to worship that which is transcendent, that which is outside of yourself, that which requires you to meditate and to pray and to get outside of the self to get into something that is so much larger than the culture we're in, than the society we're in, that the flesh that we have. And what Paul says, look at verse 3. You might have different translations, but Paul says, He says here, and he said it earlier in chapter 4, these things are elementary principles, he says. That language of elementary principles is actually grounded upon, what he's saying there is the basic building blocks of of language or or the alphabet. Uh, And so every language has these basic principles. To make an alphabet, you have to have these basic principles that exist in the alphabet. They're super simple. In fact, Lord of the Rings uses... Uh, J.R. Tolkien used a basic kind of alphabet to create the, the languages within the book. They do the same thing in geeky shows if you're a sci-fi. It's shown the other side of me. I'm like a football guy and a sci-fi nerd. I know it's a weird combo. Um, like Star Trek and, and different sci-fi movies like Star Wars, the languages they use, they first come up with a simple alphabet to create a new language so that it doesn't sound like just jargon, but it actually sounds somewhat like a language. Paul says this is like, when you worship these things, when you turn to these things, He's saying it's like going back to these elementary basic principles. They're simplistic, 
And then another way, some of your translations might say it differently, another way that he says it is these things are weak and they're miserable. They're weak and they're miserable. It's Paul's way of saying when you, when you are running after something that is not God himself, you will find it not only to be weak, but it will make you miserable. And we, we've said this before, the statistics for the amount of time people spend on social media that is correlated with their emotional well-being, there is a correlation there. Because we now are becoming more and more isolated, less and less about community, and more and more about the visual. We're hoping and we're building upon the fact that people will like us and they'll care about us and that something will satisfy. And ultimately, Paul's saying what we all know, these things do not satisfy. Amen? I mean, you've got to know it in your heart. There, there is, I mean, we just discussed a little bit last week, and I know you're still hearing about it, with Kanye West becoming a Christian. You've got an individual who has said, I've had it all. I've had sex, I've had money, I've had prestige, I've had power, and now he's declaring, now I'm serving Jesus. Because ultimately, he's made the declaration that the old life that he has had, the celebrity life that he has had, everything the world says that will make you happy doesn't make you happy, it makes you miserable. And if you know the Kanye West story, you know he was at a near meltdown over a year ago. He, he, people were like, he's crazy. He's lost it. And now he's declaring he's a Christian, and people are now saying, he's crazy. He's lost it. Right? The, 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 the reality, though, of what Paul is driving in, that I have to drive in with you this morning, is that these things, these things will not satisfy you. They are weak, and they are basic, and, and they are enslaving. That's the language Paul says. They will trap you. They will make you miserable. So you're not to try to find your salvation, your happiness, as Pascal put it, in anything other than Jesus himself. He says these things will ultimately destroy you. Here's the deal. God ultimately, ultimately, if you, if you were to say after the service, if Jesus was here this morning, and you had the opportunity, and you walked up to Jesus one-on-one this morning, and he said, I'd like to take you to breakfast. Or you go to him, and he said, I'd like to take you to breakfast. And I want to ask you the secret to life. I want to ask you the secret to living, the secret to joy. But that would sell on a top 10 book list for sure, the secret to joy. But if you sat down with God, the author of life, the author of good, the one who, who, who has made all things beautiful, who created nature and, and the snow that you love snowboarding in. Like if you snowboard, you've got to do it to the glory of the Lord. You've got to thank God every time you step outside. If you were to sit down with him and, and you were to have a conversation with him about what, what makes someone happy and what is the purpose of life, the very, very first conversation you would have with him would be about this topic. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. It's the first two commandments. You shall have no other God before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or anything in the likeness or anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water of the earth. You shall not bow to them. You shall not serve them. For I am the Lord, your God, and I am a jealous God. The very first thing he would do, he'd sit down with you and he would say, your whole life cannot revolve around stuff. Your whole life cannot revolve around having fun. Your whole life cannot revolve around anything other than, other than me. And if it does, Paul is adding to this thing. You're going to be weak, and you're going to be miserable, and you're going to be unhappy. And some of you this morning may feel exactly like that, weak, miserable, and unhappy. And it's my job to declare to you that Jesus has given us a perfect solution to pull you out of the miry pit of depression into the great heavens of joy. And what is that solution? It's in the text. Listen to what he says. He mentions his slave. He mentions you can go back. Why are you going back to these things? He's asking them why they would go back to it. And then he says this, um, verse 9. But now that you've come to know God, here's the kicker, or rather to be known by God. What Paul is saying ultimately with the solution of killing idols, the solution is you are known by God. The first thing he says, first he says, Listen, you got to know, you know God, you know him, you met him. Remember last week, he said, to be a Christian, your heart cries out. There's something inside of you that says, Abba, Father, Daddy. When you become a Christian, part of that evidence is, is you cry out that you want Jesus. Even when you're running after idols, even when you sin, even when you mess up, there's still something inside of you that's crying, Abba, Father, Daddy, I need you. And, and, and as a father, he always responds and he says, okay, there is this thing. You know God. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. It's almost like 
I can, I can feel and relate to what he's saying. He's like, and listen, you want the solution to fight idols? Love God. I, I can feel it. It's almost like he's like, you want the solution? Love God. And then he's like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. My theology's off. My doctrine is off. It isn't that you love God. He steps back and he goes, it's that God loves you. He loves you. What Paul is saying is this. He says, know this, church. Know that God's desire for you is greater than your desire for him. He's saying if you want to kill idols in your life, you have to understand the consistency of the love that God has for you and the contrast of the inconsistency you have for your love of God. You see, my my sister, uh, the best way picture for this is my sister got me into this show on the History Channel uh, called Alone. I don't know if you've seen it. Anyone seen it? Okay, great. I'll tell you what the show's about. Um, So they they take 10 people. Uh, In the first two seasons which shows you how far I've binged into the program. In the first two seasons, they, they take these 10 individuals to the Vancouver Islands in Canada, uh, right around fall, entering into winter. And the Vancouver Islands, I don't know if you've ever uh, seen that place, but it looks very depressing. And what they do is they, they place them uh, separated by several miles by impassable waters and impassable mountain passes so that they have to be alone. They are alone alone. In fact, the only way that you are able to see what's happening is that each contestant has to film themselves. There's no camera crew. And, and they each are given a sat phone so they can call if there's an emergency or if they need to be picked up. And, and it's, it's all about who can last the longest. Who can go the longest on the island and not only survive, but deal with, and this is why the program's called Alone, the psychological effects of just being alone. Because what drives these people ultimately to their wit's end is the fact that they've been alone for week after week after week. It's not that they can't survive. It's just a psychological battle of aloneness. Uh, and so in the show, in the, in the show, there's this, this scene. Is that early on, they get there, and really, uh, at that time of the season, their major food source is the ocean. And so the ocean has, twice a day in the Vancouver Islands, every 10 hours or so, a high tide and a low tide. You can't fish, really, and you can't get into the little crustaceans and stuff at high tide, so they have to time the low tide. And the low tide recedes. They're able to get, you know, little shell, shellfish and, and different things, and it just allows them to eat. As the program progresses and winter comes, the storms become more, more aggressive. The tide becomes uh, more, uh, they're not able to predict it. And they start having this frustration because the high tide, uh, when it's supposed to be high tide, is low tide. The low tide sometimes is high tide, and they're now having a hard time predicting when their food is going to come and when their substance is going to come, and it starts to kind of drive them a little batty. That is a picture of your love for Jesus. Sometimes you're at high tide. Sometimes you're at low tide. Did you wake up this morning at high tide, or did you wake up this morning at low tide? You might have woken up at high tide, and then you got here, and you're back at low tide. You woke up at high tide, and then your kids woke up, and then you're back to low tide. <laughs> There's this, this pull. You sense it, it. And sometimes, if you've been like me, I've tried to even ask the question, well, was it my diet that day? Was it something I drank? Did I have too much caffeine? Uh, was it the vitamin that I, I took? What is it that I feel that my love for God is back and forth? And this is ultimately what Paul is saying. He's saying, listen, listen, guys, you, you, you cannot depend on your joy based upon your feelings and your emotions for God because they're too unpredictable. But if you really want to take care of idols in your life, you'll recognize that Jesus' desire for you will always be greater than your desire for him. Always. What's amazing when you think about idol worship is the Bible takes this all the way back in Hosea and says, whenever you try to run after something that isn't of Jesus, the Bible says it's like prostitution. That's the book of Hosea. It's like cheating on God. When, when you cheat on God, and then the whole book of Hosea, which declares this process of a prophet who, who loves a prostitute, that's the book. You've got to read your Bibles. It's crazy, the stuff that's in there. A prophet loves a prostitute. prostitute leaves him. He continues to love her, and then ultimately they end up with this beautiful kind of marriage, and, and, and it's declared within the book of Hosea. God says, the reason that I had you do this is because this is my love for my people. It's the same way that you love Gomer, which is her name. What he says is, you know what? I know my people are constantly running after things that don't satisfy them. God knows that people within the church are constantly running after things that don't satisfy them. Gambling won't satisfy. <laughs> Netflix will not satisfy. If you're, not, if you're a single person, marriage will not satisfy you. 
If you're not able to have kids or, 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 or if you want kids desperately, it won't satisfy you. If you it won't, ultimately won't. If you're at the stage that I'm at and you're like, man, I hope they graduate really soon. That ultimately will not be my satisfaction. My satisfaction is not hinged upon my situation or my, my placement or my, my, my life, wherever it's at. My, my happiness has to be dependent on the reality that even though I'm not always faithful to God, God is always faithful to me. Amen? Keller says it like this a couple different ways. He says, the great and central basis of Christian assurance is not how much our hearts are set on God, but how unshakably his heart is set on us. Or as I've quoted so many times before, it's just such a beautiful quote, I can't help but use it again and again and again. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is well a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. And I dare say it helps you mortify the idol's that exist in your life. You want to know how you ultimately mortify what is the reformed kind of language that to kill off those idols in your life. You have to know the unshakable love that God has for you. That's number one. Number two, because he loves you, you then need to love him. Remember the Bible says we love him because he first loved us. You then have to allow your hearts to run after Jesus. When you start feeling depressed, make your step your first step, not the internet, but Christ, the word when you start feeling anxious or angry, go to God in prayer. As the Bible says, when, to fight those demonic forces, that we are to take every thought captive. Don't trust everything that enters into your mind because it could be Satan lying to you. It could be your own flesh lying to you. And then number three, you've got to have someone like Paul. You've got to have community. Because the reality is when, when, when we have something in our life, ultimately that's an idol, you don't necessarily see it. But when you have a good brother or sister in your life that loves Jesus and they love you, they might be able to see it. Just as Paul is saying, he sees it. He's on the outside in. He goes, hey, you have an issue in your life. Church community is important. Getting in relationships with other people in the church is important so that they can pull you off to the side and say, hey, man, I've noticed, I think you're drinking too much. You sure you're not relying on alcohol to bring you contentment and joy? Hey, I've, I've noticed you are watching a lot of TV. Are you sure that you're not running to that television program to satisfy a hole in your heart that only Jesus can satisfy? Because I don't want you to be weak and miserable. I want you to be strong and joy-filled. Hey, I think you might be making uh, your children idols. I mean, that's a soccer mom kind of thing to do. Don't do that. Your kids aren't going to always satisfy you. They're not. Hey, I think, I think you might be making money or your job a little too important. See, these things aren't bad in and of themselves, but they're bad when you run to them for satisfaction. You need somebody who'll step in and say, hey, hey, you know what? I think you're missing it. You know what? I think, I think you're a little off base. And then, and then the, the, perfect, the perfect example of or knowing how someone, if someone's a Christian or not, is how they respond to that. Someone who's truly in love with Jesus, someone who truly understands the gospel, someone who really understands grace says, you know, thank you. I had someone say something to me kind of rough this week uh, that I completely disagree with. But they said it. And I looked at them and I didn't defend myself, which is the natural kind of thing to do. I just simply said, thank you for sharing your, your thought there. Thank you for sharing your concern. And I can tell you I'm going to take that to prayer. And if I need to repent of something, I will. And that has, that has and is my approach. I don't need to argue. I don't need to defend myself. I don't need to tell them that I'm right. I need to take that thing and bring it before my Savior and say, God, is there something in my life that might be a hindrance between you and I? And then allow the Lord to reveal and to purify and remove it, remove it because I want my joy to increase with each day. And this process is hard of mortifying your idols. You'll see there's kind of steps to this, which kind of are included with repentance. The first step just so you know, when you start getting rid of your idols, people start challenging you, you start getting rid of them. The first step is you're afraid of losing your idol. In fact, that's the number one way you can recognize if you have an idol in your life. When you say, I can't live if you take that away, then it's an idol. Let me ask you, church, could you live without Netflix? Could you live without Hulu? Could you live without Amazon? Could you live without skiing? Could you live without mountain biking? Could you live without golfing? Could you live without soccer? Could you live without traveling? Could you live without all that money? Could you live without that car? 
See, now all of a sudden we go, wait, wait a minute. You sound legalistic, bro. No, I'm not, I'm not being legalistic. It's Jesus revealing to you. It's Jesus revealing to you that you may be making too much of something that's good. None of that stuff's bad. Vacation's good. I could use a vacation. It's not a bad thing. Having a nice house, not a bad thing. I mean, hear me on this. None of these things are bad, but when you make them a best thing, again, he's driving in. He's saying, listen, weak and miserable. It's going to be a fearful process. Then there comes sorrow because you realize they're powerless to save you, and then you might even feel shame because you realize that uh, you, can't, you can't believe you spent so much time running after that thing, that you spent so much time doing that thing. Remember so, several years ago, uh, this is kind of a funny story, but Brad and I, when we were doing youth ministry together, probably two years in, remember, you know where I'm, talk- you know where I'm going? You don't? It's embarrassing, I know. Brad and I both got into this Facebook thing called Farmville. Do you remember Farmville? <laughs> well, send me a cow. Yeah. Some of you may not remember. This is a stupid Facebook game. And we both got just so sucked into it. And I remember Wayne pulled us off to the side, and he said, you know, you guys got to stop playing so much Farmville <laughs> while you're at work. <laughs> Hey, under the glory of the Lord, man, cultivating the land. Kids love it. It's an in-reach thing here. See, the reason I mention that is because when I look back on that, I look back at it with such shame. (laughs) Why did I spend so much stupid time playing that game? But that's what you realize when you finally realize something was an idol. You you feel a guilt. I can't believe I did that. Then, Then and only then once you're empty... Once you're empty, you can finally open your heart so that God can completely fill you with the desire he has for you, which is stronger than the desire you have for him. You have to empty the self so that you can be filled with Jesus himself. As the worship team comes up, the um, kind of closing takeaways, which are in your program, I just want you to ask, number one, what, what idols are you most in danger of serving? What are the things in your life that that maybe you've made too much of. Number two, how does God's love for you encourage you and strengthen you? So I want you to ask the question what you might be wrestling with in your life that's not from the Lord, and then I want you to see the strength of God's love for you to overcome it. And then, and number three, I want you to ask the question, this should say, how does remembering, not remember, but how does remembering that God knows you free you from idols and temptation? I mean, the simple way to say it from what Keller said is you're fully known and you're fully loved. It's interesting on that, that show, the History Channel, Being Alone, uh, and Caleb and I were talking about this this last week because I shared the program with Caleb, and now Caleb's watching the program, and so we're talking about it. And He said what's interesting, and after he did a little bit of research, he found the number one reason people don't make it in survival is shame. What happens when the, these individuals are alone for so long is they start thinking about all their past mistakes. And, and if left alone long enough, those past mistakes drive them to a place where they no longer want to thrive or live. A one individual in the program, he literally says it about three weeks in, he just says, man, I've made so many mistakes in my life, they're kind of hard to live with. He goes on and says, if you've ever done anything wrong and you're alone like this, it'll visit you, it'll come back to you. There's no, there's no distraction there's no just escaping it. You've got to live with it. You've got to deal with it. And he says you better like yourself if you're going to be alone with yourself this long. But ultimately, some studies have shown that it's, it's the idea of shame. And, and here's the good news. Jesus is well aware of those things. If you were left alone on an island for a long period of time, you should be able to find security that God has forgiven you of your past mistakes. He's made you born again. He's well aware of all the things you've done. He's well aware of the things you should have done that you didn't do. And he still loves you anyways. And he paid a great price to redeem you unto himself. It's incredible good news. Jesus, as we close, may our hearts be lifted on high to you. May we make you fully who you are meant to be, the center, the core of our being and our heart. Help us, Lord, as our our hearts turn out those idols to mortify them that you would be the one that is resurrected within our hearts on a daily basis. We trust you for the work, trust you for the sanctification, trust you for the comfort. 
In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Friends, let's stand together. and Let's respond in song. And As I shared with the first service, the verse that kind of came to mind as we talk about idols is... Um, you know, the book of 1 John tells us if, if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. That we are, the chains of sin are broken, and it's broken by Jesus and Jesus alone. And that's what this next song talks about. So let's lift our voices in adoration and praise. It goes like this. Of your glory, for you 